Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. We are broadcasting from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California on traditional and unceded Chumash territory. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Welcome, everybody. My name's Amy with the Center and Library for the Bible and Social Justice, and I'm really glad to have you all here and really blessed to welcome our comrades from Maria and um, and Gretchen from the Sweetwater Cultural Center this evening, and also uh, Ched Myers and Elaine Enns, the authors of Healing Haunted Histories, which is the book that we're going to explore this evening. Um, and uh, Healing Haunted Histories is a part of CLBSJ's imprint um, with Wiffenstock Publishers. So we feel very, um, you know, proud to, you know, be associated with this, um, this publication and really glad that Elaine and Chad are available this evening to, you know, create this space so that we can all, um, you know, connect with the content of it, and hopefully everybody will also buy a copy <laughs> and um, and in, and take a deeper dive into it. Um, just in case anybody's um, new with CLBSJ, I'll just say a word about the Center and Library for the Bible and Social Justice. Um, we are uh, a, a library and an organizing center, and we strive to create connections between scholars and activists, as well as other folks that are um, you know, seeking transformative change um, within a special focus on really um, trying to draw out our biblical and scriptural traditions and the power they have to, um, to support our efforts for change. Um, and uh, Ched, Ched Myers was one of the um, founders of CLBSJ and has recently stepped into the advisory committee role and um, the, the new guard, including myself, are doing our best to carry the torch, torch beyond that. Um, so this evening um, is part of our scholar activist encounters series in which just like it sounds we work to create connections between biblical scholars as well as some other types of scholars and activists um, around this question of um, uh, the bible and the connection between the bible and social justice so while we're we're going to explore Chad and Elaine's book this evening, we're also going to have um, a, a short Bible study um, that uh, draws from the book, um, and um, and then following that, we're going to hear from um, our comrades with the Sweetwater Cultural Center, um, in specific Gretchen Brokaw and Maria Lawrence. Um, both of them are on the, um, the founding board of Sweetwater Cultural Center, and, you'll, and they'll explain to you a little bit more about what that is and, um, and how it's connected to Chet and Elaine's book. So um, with that, I'm going to um, uh, thank um, everybody who's been a part of making this event happen, especially the co-sponsors, the Sweetwater Cultural Center, and the Community of Living Traditions. And then I'm going to hand it over to you, Chad and Elaine. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks, Amy. It is uh, wonderful to be with all of you. Uh, thank you for that introduction. And thanks to all of you who are tuning in tonight to this great ongoing CLBSJ series of scholar activist conversations. And a special thank you to Maria and Gretchen for joining us this evening. We see a number of folks um, that we know, some we don't know, but I saw Saskatchewan there, my home place. So just very grateful um, that all of you have joined us. Special, uh, we see so many friends on the screen, but we wanna give a special shout out to uh, Diane LaFortune. Uh, beaming in from Canada. Uh, Mama D, it's good to see you and thanks for your own great work on decolonizing the heart and I hope you will type in that uh, URL as a resource for folks as we go on. Chad and I are beaming to you from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California, the heart of traditional and unceded Chumash territory to whom we settlers are responsible. And our friends at CLBSJ have acknowledged the territory they are beaming in from, as well as all of you in the chat. Tonight's program hopes to support our common and continuing work to heal wounds in our places and peoples in order to more deeply realize Creator's vision of beloved community. We begin our work tonight with a prayer of invocation and a reality check concerning how, as James Baldwin put it, we carry our history with us. Less than a month ago, a First Nation in the Canadian province of British Columbia reported that 182 unmarked grave sites, some as shallow as three feet, had been discovered near the location of a former Indian residential school. The Lower Kootenay Band used ground-penetrating radar to search a site near the former St. Eugene's Mission School, operated by a Catholic group until it closed in the 1970s. This finding added to a growing tally of unmarked burial sites, mostly of children, identified adjacent to res residential schools across Canada over the past month, including 215 bodies in Kamloops, British Columbia, and 751 in Saskatchewan, southeast of where I grew up. Indigenous leaders expect to find many more such graves as communities across the country unearth dark secrets buried for decades. And of course, the United States also ran federally funded boarding schools. And in response to the news from Canada, three weeks ago, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, a Laguna Pueblo, announced that there would be a search for graves of Native American children in our country. In response to these grim unearthings came protests, such as red handprints, and children's shoes placed on the steps of churches. 
More militantly, almost a dozen, dozen Catholic churches have burned down or been vandalized in four Canadian provinces since these revelations. This is what happens when hauntings erupt into public consciousness and when the anger of oppressed and invisibilized people boils over, as so many of our American cities have learned over the years in the wake of endemic police violence against black and brown bodies. This brings to mind the challenge that inauguration poet Amanda Gorman presented Americans with just two weeks after the white supremacist riot at the U.S. Capitol in January. We must step into our history in order to repair it, she exhorted, and then warned us, while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. Over the last decade, hauntology has become a new social psychological field of study about how the trauma of past oppression lingers in both people and places. Sociologist Avery Gordon, in her important and groundbreaking 1997 book, Ghostly Matters, asserts that, quote, haunting is a constituent element of modern social life through which repressed or unresolved social violence makes itself known in everyday life, especially when they're supposedly over and done with, slavery, for instance, or when their oppressive nature is continually denied. Yet, importantly, Gordon also emphasizes how reckoning with these ghosts can, in fact, mobilize individual social or political movement and change, but only if the hauntings are faced. In Gordon's work, we found a helpful frame for our book, Healing Haunted Histories. But how do we summarize briefly a 400-page book? We start our narrative by citing Dr. King's famous 1963 diagnosis of the etiology of the American dis-ease of settler colonialism. Our nation was born in genocide, he said, before enslaved Africans were brought to our shores, referring to the historical moment that today many in the Black Lives Matter movement call the landfall of the COVID-1619 pandemic, the scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society in the dispossession of indigenous peoples. King concluded by acknowledging that Americans who desire to liberate ourselves from this tangled web of prejudice have not yet fully grasped how deeply it has been woven into our consciousness. We think that this courageous and prescient analysis now 60 years old still summarizes concisely the task facing us in the work of decolonization. Healing Haunted Histories, which came out in February, is our attempt to encourage, challenge, and equip settler Christians and other people of faith and conscience to first understand how our histories, landscapes, and communities are haunted by the long and continuing history of indigenous dispossession wrought by settler colonialism. Second, to transform the self-understandings, lifeways, and structures we inhabit and thirdly, 
to practice restorative solidarity with indigenous communities as part of a wider movement of decolonization. And we call this a discipleship of decolonization. And we do this work by exploring three narrative strands which weave through each one of our individual and communal stories. Landlines, that is our past and present places of inhabitation. Bloodlines, our family and communi community formation and race, race and ethnic identities. And songlines, the liberative traditions that inspire us to practices of justice and compassion. The heart of our book maps how readers can explore, interrogate, and decolonize these strands. We use my family and communal storylines as a primary example. My Mennonite grandparents' flight from Russia and Ukraine in the wake of the violence and displacement of the Russian Revolution and their eventual arrival as refugees on the Canadian prairies in the 1920s. And how these traumatized immigrants settled near Cree communities in Saskatchewan, where Mennonite farmers were actively being recruited by the Canadian government to help domesticate the prairies. These Indigenous people were even more deeply traumatized by hundreds of years of colonial dispossession and suppression. So two haunted communities struggled to survive side by side with almost no connection between them until recently as Cree hospitality and activism and Mennonite solidarity are beginning to change the story. But ours is a binational project, so let's look at a 19th century artifact from where we live now. This is a picture of the Gaviota Coast, northwest of Santa Barbara, where my family used to camp when I was a teenager. This is an area um, that is the heart of Chumash country, the first people of this place. We often camped in Tahiguas Canyon, the former site I learned much later of the Chumash village of Tashiwa. One year, I found an old coast live oak not far from our campsite. It was adorned with this arbor glyph dating to the early 1800s and thought to be a Chumash rendering of a neophyte, that is someone forcibly taken into the Spanish mission system, kneeling before a padre. This was my first exposure as an already alienated teenager growing up in an unchurched home to the heavy footprint of the Spanish colonization of California. Though at the time, we just called it the Indian tree with no further context or conversation. Only later did I awaken to the true history of my home place that explained that tattooed tree with its layers of Spanish and then Mexican and then American domination as recently outlined by indigenous Californian Elias Castillo and UCLA historian Benjamin Madley. This fading photo has hung on my walls for decades like a haunting. There are so many questions that it raises, so many issues to explore in the labyrinth of decolonization work. But this arboglyph reminds us that one important thread is the need for Christians to face the legacy of colonizing missions. So to that end, we turn to a brief gospel reflection on decolonizing Christian mission. 
We're grateful that Norman Gottwald, um, one of the animators of the library and who's on the call tonight, it was Norman who suggested that our book be included as part of the Wiffenstock CLBSJ imprint series, and we're so grateful, even though uh, our focus is not particularly biblical studies. But here we offer a summary of one of the scripture studies that leavens our book. Jesus' so-called missionary instructions is a tradition that appears in all three synoptic gospels. In fact, if you were in church a couple of weeks ago, the gospel reading, including Mark's version of Luke's text shown here. This is a passage that surely haunts the consciousness of Christendom the world over. Because had Christians observed these simple guidelines for how to interact with other peoples and places, the history of the world would have been profoundly different. Jesus could not have been clearer or more unequivocal in these marching orders. But for the most part, our ancestors in the faith ignored them. And consequently, there has been hell to pay, a legacy of domination and supremacy and genocide tattooed like an arbor glyph on every land over the centuries across our weary world. Of course, some of us Christians would like to disassociate from this history and its legacy, as if our privileges were not rooted in it. But we think a better way is to name and face it in order to exercise what we call in this book, response ability for restorative solidarity. This means being accountable to this legacy and embracing the difficult historic work of personal and political healing and repair. Christian missions have a long and complex history, which obviously we can't do justice to here. But we do want to make three basic observations. First, it is important to acknowledge that the spread of Christianity across time, two millennia, and space, the entire globe, and cultures, almost none untouched, hasn't always and everywhere been synonymous with conquest and colonization. If we assume a simple story, we miss the amazing episodes in which the gospel spread organically and peaceably, and often not by white folk. Second, it is equally important to acknowledge, on the other hand, the much harder fact that all too often and all too ubiquitously, Christian missions have fused cross and sword, conversion and conquest, evangelization and subjugation. Because of this apostasy, the history of contact between indigenous and European immigrants in the Americas is laced with settler betrayal and historical violation. And third, Christians aren't unique in colonizing, missionizing. Indeed, the spread of settler colonialism was powered by ideologies of racial superiority, which were secularized early on in the American experience. The medieval theological doctrine of discovery, for example, morphed in the 19th century into the thoroughly secular ideology of progress as manifest destiny.
The famous image shown here was actually a railroad recruiting poster issued shortly after completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, which sought to assure Eastern settlers that it was safe to settle in the Far West. It unabashedly celebrates the inexorable march of white domination over the continent. Notice in the foreground, this march is led by militia and followed closely by resource extractors, then farmers, then locomotives. A fairly accurate summary of 19th century colonization. The sun rises behind the Mississippi River while indigenous people together with buffalo and bear flee into the darkness. And notice the secular symbolism. That is not an angel in the middle, but the mythic image of Columbia, a feminized version of Columbus, the goddess of liberty and the personification of America. She lays telegraph wire with her left hand and it's not a Bible in her right hand, it is a school book. Remember the Indian residential schools. But let us be clear, today, a thoroughly capitalist ideology of manifest destiny persists, especially in the presumptions of US corporations to roam the globe in search of resources to extract and markets to dominate. We think it is fair to say that the archetypal 21st century American business person abroad has fewer scruples about exploiting people and land than the worst ethnocentric Christian missionary of the 19th century. Nevertheless, we need to acknowledge how such behavior has its roots in the long lamentable history of colonizing Christian missions. Beginning with Columbus, 500 years of missions as conquest, both religious and secular, left no corner of the world untouched. And our churches still have to come to terms with this legacy. However, with the impact of global decolonization movements in the mid 20th century and the slow but steady indigenization of many churches, some Western Christian leaders did begin to rethink this missionary legacy and vocation. In the early 1970s, the World Council of Churches called for a moratorium on missions. An East Indian theologian and former Associate General Secretary of the WCC put it in 1974. Today, it is economic imperialism or neo-colonialism that is the pattern of missions, which is the greatest enemy of the gospel. Despite this change of heart, the truth is that most North American churches were thoroughly seduced by the mythology of empire, again depicted in this 1862 painting by another European immigrant. So we think it's crucial to pursue a radical analysis. That is one that returns to the roots of our tradition to seek out where we Christians went so wrong. And as we argue here, one of the many fatal errors of Christendom is exposed in our Lucan text, namely 
our abandonment of principles of hospitality, given and received. Indeed, the perverted gospel of colonization was and is founded upon a colonization of the gospel that is elaborate theological systems which ignored or rationalized away the clear instructions that Jesus gave to his followers about how to build their movement for personal and political transformation. Here's our text again, which as you see has a chiastic structure, A, B, C, B, A. This composition functions to emphasize the middle, verse 4, the command to respect one's host by living within the limits of their capacity for and willingness to extend hospitality, which is exactly what our missionary ancestors did not do here on Turtle Island the road not taken. Jesus' instructions to his movement were simple, clear, and timeless. How different history would have been had Christians heeded them. Now Luke is particularly interested in these instructions to movement organizers on the road, as we call them, to distinguish them from later missionaries. He features them in chapter nine in the sending out of the 12, the previous slide, and then again in the sending out of the 70 in the next chapter shown here, which is even more elaborate and contains some cue material. We'll look at the shorter consensus version, which appears in all three synoptics. Let's look at its salient points. Note that Jesus' commission to organizers is twofold, to proclaim an alternative socio-political order called the kingdom of God, and to confront unclean spirits and cure disease. This last aspect is reiterated in verse 2 as healing the weak, a noun connoting both physical and socioeconomic vulnerability. So, for example, Luke understands the verb astaneo to include impoverished people in Acts 20.35. These same basic aspects are repeated in the concluding part of this passage, a framing technique, so we don't miss it. Verse 6 defines the proclamation as good news, that famous phrase which the early Christian movement appropriated from Roman propaganda in order to turn the world upside down. At face value, then, there's nothing objectionable about a movement that seeks to organize for liberation and wholeness. And indeed, every human social order contains elements of both oppression and sickness. <clears throat> this brings us to the critical matter of how organizers show up. The significance of verse 3 cannot be overstated. Don't carry your baggage into a host community, warns Jesus. This isn't just about traveling light. It's about going vulnerably. No staff and bag means the traveling organizers are liminal, dependent, not in control. Jesus' strategy contrasts starkly with, for example, the old story in 1 Samuel 17 about David who approached the foreigner Goliath with a staff and a bag full of five stones. In other words, to do battle. Tragically, too often over the last 500 years, missionary baggage has been weaponized because the ultimate colonizing intent was not to heal, 
but to dominate. Forsaking bread and money is pretty straightforward. These are the means of sustenance on the road. Not to be self-sufficient guarantees the dependence of the organizer upon those she or he is approaching. This ensures that the host, not the guest, retains the upper hand. The instruction to limit oneself to only one tunic is interesting given that a change of clothes would have been a rare luxury among peasant Middle Easterners. As Luke 3.11 states earlier, John the Baptist exhorted his, listener, his listeners, if you have two coats, give one to the poor. So the assumption is that the Jesus movement organizers have already distributed their own surplus rather than bringing it with them on the road. Moreover, it stands to reason that if organizers don't have extra tunics, they'll eventually have to adopt the clothing of their hosts because dress matters. It is a way of either fitting in or remaining apart. The history of the colonial era suggests that Christian missionaries got this bass awkward. Not only did they bring trunks full of their own culture and presuppositions and clothes, but they demanded that their baggage, including costumes, be imposed on their native hosts. How different things would have been had Christians practiced a disrobed gospel, naked and unashamed, so to speak. Here we arrive at the center of Jesus' teaching, the instruction to remain in a home that welcomes you. The implication is that organizers must stay long enough to truly understand the new place and people, which can take a very long time. Again, this is a hedge on the temptation to impose. Of course, this requires that there be local hosts willing to provide hospitality. So the organizers had better be on good behavior, make themselves useful. This instruction is expanded later in Luke 10, 5 to 8. Don't move from house to house, eat what you're served, leave only a blessing of peace on the house that welcomes you. In other words, don't look for a better deal, don't demand special treatment, eat local, be grateful. The implication is that the organizer remains a guest without a settlement footprint that takes over. Remain with your host, says Jesus, and then leave. Ah, there's the key. In an important early definition of settler colonialism, Sociologist Patrick Wolf wrote that, quote, settler colonialism strives for the dissolution of native societies. It erects a new colonial society on the expropriated land base. Settler colonizers came to stay. This brings to mind the famous lament of the colonized, attributed to Jomo Kenyatta, though often quoted by Desmond Tutu. When the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. When we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. But what we were supposed to do, according to Jesus, was to offer the gift of healing and good news and move on 
lingering only on the terms of the host. How different, how different, how different history would have been, could have been, if only. The final core of instruction is that interesting ritual of what to do as an emissary of the movement if you are not welcomed. This is included because it's always and everywhere a real prospect. In that case, says Jesus, move on. Don't retaliate. Don't force yourself on your hosts. And don't take over their frickin' neighborhood. Leave. The shaking off of the dust is clearly a symbolic gesture that is important to Luke, since it appears several times in Acts. Paul leaves both Iconium and later Corinth in Acts 18 in such fashion, though note that the same demonstration is used against Paul by his opponents in Jerusalem in chapter 21. Jesus identifies this dust shaking as a form of symbolic protest in Luke 10, 11, which he associates with the rejection of the angelic travelers in the ancient story of Sodom. Because the great sin of Sodom, contrary to how most Christians understand that old tale, was lack of hospitality to strangers. In Genesis 19, the Sodomites refuse and then abuse the very angels that Abraham and Sarah had welcomed in Genesis 18. So Jesus is saying, yes, inhospitality is a serious problem, especially for movement envoys. But all you can do is point it out. If folks don't have he ears to hear, move on. Done and dusted, so to speak. How different things might have been. The tragic fact is that newly arriving Europeans on Turtle Island almost always initially encountered generous hospitality from the indigenous peoples they met. Because welcoming strangers was and is endemic to traditional Native culture. The problem was that this hospitality was very soon abused by missionary colonists because, they shared, because their shared goal was not community, but conquest. They came and stayed and took over the house. So what does it mean? for us to return to the roots of Jesus' teaching and to become accountable for the road not taken by our predecessors in faith. Maybe it's indigenous peoples who should be shaking the dust from their feet in protest. Take this parody of the John Gast icon we looked at a few minutes ago, which reverses the direction of manifest destiny pushing back on what Europeans have done to Turtle Island. The buffalo return, the people return, the land heals. As for us settler Christians, we need to figure out how to atone for this history, and as activists ourselves, how to practice only a disrobed style of organizing, one that focuses on offering good news of an alternative to empire, and healing for those dehumanized and made weak by that empire. Contemporary indigenous activist Nikki Sanchez summarizes the whole matter simply and succinctly. This history is not your fault, but it is absolutely your responsibility.
We explore many aspects of settler responsibility in this book. And in the last chapter, profile a variety of restorative practices that people of faith are working with today. But since tonight we're talking about how to heal and repair the legacy of church as colonizer, we want to highlight one example of ecclesial reparation. Reparation continues to be a live question in the African-American community and repatriation of indigenous land and life is considered the ultimate goal of decolonization, according to many native leaders, as recently popularized in the hashtag land back movement. We know that these issues spike our settler anxieties and that our communities and institutions typically dismiss such talk as too complicated or unrealistic. After all, redistributive justice is still considered high heresy in capitalist culture. But we Christians can and must think and organize together with Indigenous colleagues concerning power, money, and land justice. A conversation we've tried to nurture and resource at our annual Bartimaeus Institutes here in California. So one example of a settler Christian experiment <clears throat> with reparation that we profile in our book <clears throat> is one that has unfolded in relationship to CLBSJ and to board member and former Stony Point Center director Rick Ufford Chase. Stony Point Presbyterian Church made the difficult decision to close its doors in fall of 2017, which led to a concrete gesture of repatriation. In 2016, the Presbyterian Church USA General Assembly officially repudiated the doctrine of discovery, calling on all levels of the PC USA to enter into dialogue, strategy, and action with indigenous people of the region as part of a process of confession and repentance to redress wrongs. Alfred Chase, a former denominational moderator, proposed to Stony Point Press that they explore with local indigenous leaders a possible handover of the property. Discussions with Chief Duane Perry of the Ramapo Lenape Nation culminated in a November 2019 transfer of this former Stony Point Church and all its property to the newly created Sweetwater Cultural Center to promote the education, health, and welfare of Native peoples and to preserve their cultures and ceremonial practices. Chad and I were delighted to share in Sweetwater's online Thanksgiving program last fall. And tonight we have the honor of hearing from two of Sweetwater's founding collaborators, Lenape scholar, Dr. Maria Lawrence and Shinnegok activist, Gretchen Brokaw. Friends, we are so glad to meet you and hear from you. So Maria, I think we uh, in, invite you and then Gretchen to uh, share some thoughts, some responses. Thank you very much. Um, first, I want to acknowledge that uh, I come to you from um, 
the sacred and the ancestral lands of the Nahagansit in uh, Rhode Island. And um, I'm grateful for their generosity and their spirit and warmth in hosting myself here. Um, I also want to thank you for being so thorough uh, and thoughtful in the presentation of the foundational um, essence and perspective, both from its religiosity as well as from its social and political uh, standpoint. Maria, and are you able to hear me? Can I, I also you? want to thank everybody who who's here and the gift of sweet water. Um, it was a generous and uh, thoughtful opportunity uh, for reconciliation, um, not just repatriation, but um, an opportunity to view the future through a different lens and through different opportunities. And I do apologize if you have a hard time hearing me. <laughs> um, but I can turn off my video and hopefully that will help on more than one level. Thank you. Sure, please do. Yes, um, Maria, we can hear you much better now. So um, please, can you continue? So um, I'll continue, but interrupt if you, if. If, and please interrupt me if you need to. Um, so in full disclosure, I have not yet read um, all of your book. I have read excerpts from the book. Um, and I may be a scholar of sorts, but I do not know if I'm a Lenape. Yes, I do not know if I'm a Lenape scholar. <laughs> I am Lenape, um, Muncie uh, Ramapo. So um, I bring, thank you, um, that's good to hear, thank you. Um, so I bring a perspective that is one um, that is mixed, right? And when I say mixed, I mean um, experiences as an individual, right? And that's really what I think drives my response. I'm an educator, um, and one of the things that I appreciate from John Dewey's work is the focus on experience and the significance of experience in the evolution of the individual, but more importantly, that thinking is experience, that having a reflective uh, pedagogy of thought is what creates opportunity for deep discourse and hopefully the forging of understanding that we exchange experiences with open hearts and open minds in, I think, the way that the creator wants us to so that we can find out what the creator would have us do. Um, and 
one of the things that I found interesting in your discourse is very consistent with performance ethnography. I am taking from what I know of the book and from your presentation that performance ethnogra ethnography as um, uh, uh, Din uh, describes, who is uh, well-vested and established in qualitative uh, research, um, has us begin to look at performance ethnography as a way of addressing scholarship that deviates from the norm that smiths out in decolonizing methodologies, um, where we take into account the us. This type of um, interaction and this type of discourse is one of the reasons why a river, right, in Altora is a person, has personhood. This is something that only comes from a real deep exchange and willingness to understand that first and foremost, we are all indigenous to Mother Earth. No one is without indigeneity. So it forces us to think more deeply about what that word means when we encounter each other. I do not deny my great grandfather who came across, right, um, Ellis Island and signed the book <laughs> as he came in on that river, right, that has been the foundation of of uh, Lenape historical and ancestral territory. Um, but it allows us then to, to celebrate that somehow people have come together. Surely this is not something new. Even among the nations, we have always, despite disagreements historically with our cousins from time to time, uh, there's been a recognition that uh, creator put us here and that we all have a role uh, to play. And it's important that we think deeply about not just what that role is, but how does it mesh? How does it support others? How does it support ourselves? So the fact that we can um, begin now a conversation about the fact that part of decolonizing, however you feel about that term, allows us to revisit what it is that's really important. What does it mean to be repatriated land? You know, it's an interesting concept for me because when I think about land as an indigenous person, I recognize that I have a geographic identity, that my WAM and other nations that I, my ancestors and I continue to, inter, to interact with, and that that wampum represents many things. It, meant, it, it represents an environment that can feed us. It represents an environment that fosters who, to work with the natural tools and resources there. So I understand from a historic perspective why land remains a focus, but to, to then really work with land to engage the land in the way that um, I think the creator would want us to reminds me of a creation story, uh, contemporary creation story told by Kevin Locke, who is Lakota. Um, and I won't tell his story because I was taught that that's not a nice thing to do. Um, but in his story, he, he creation story, right? Where he talks about how when bison, the buffalo came before the creator, um, the creator had to, to tell bison that at one time surface remaining. So it, it's a story that invites the settler in to a mindset about 
what it means to be on land. And that seems so strange in a way, because as I understand the history of the Mennonites, and feel free to correct me, that they were given lands um, at one point and told to farm them. And they did an excellent job, right? They did what anybody would do. They learned what the land was. What is the nature of the soil? What can be grown? How often do I need to let it rest? What crop should be rotated where? These are, are strategies as, as, as old as the discovery of agriculture among, among our uh, species. So I think for me, and I can only speak for me, that when I think of land, it's a very visceral kind of connection. And every day I go out and even though I don't have quote unquote, a lot of land, I can appreciate uh, where I am and what it can offer, what it has offered, what it will continue to offer if only we can design our interactions with each other for that kind of shared appreciation. And that's because I know, Chad, well, things that you have spoken about um, in interviews uh, and your podcasting around. So land, while it's an issue um, in one sense historically and politically, and certainly is at the heart of manifest destiny um, as articulated um, by discovery, it also speaks to performance ethnographies in the way that we talk about them. And I think of some of our indigenous authors um, who write about uh, their land, who write about, for example, uh, Snake Mountain, and how just even the structure of the poem when you look at it on the page, the way the author has decided to use text, it actually is a profile of Snake Mountain. And anybody who is uh, associated or affiliated with the Southwest and, and the mountains uh, that are there, and you understand where Snake Mountain uh, is and the beauty of it, can really appreciate that that performance ethnography even though it's text and it's poetry, gives us the actual shape and contour of the mountain as a function of its text. So we bring our notions to land, of land, to everything uh, that we do in a very generalized uh, sort of way. Our names are names of origin. Our names place, uh, you know, give us uh, place and space of uh, origin and interaction. So. I find that the, the, the three lines that you use in your, um, in your work to be fascinating um, to me. And when you had the Venn diagram with the three circles, it leads me to ask a question about what is the descriptive where the three circles overlap, right? How how is that being uh, defined? And I like the fact that you use a Venn diagram because it has us begin to think about those multiple layers of dimensionality around identity, identity of place, identity of space, and what do, um, and how should we be thinking about, uh, thinking about uh, geographies, right? Geographies of identity, geographies of personality. Uh, we are all from somewhere, and yet we are all from the same place. And I say that both 
um, from a spiritual sense, but also in the practical notions of um, just human human origin and genetics, right? That we we need to look at those bloodlines and think about them not just as where I come from, and also I love that you did this, Elaine. Um, where am I going to? Right? What were what are the mechanisms? that I can create and I can navigate with others. And it's going to be a collaborative effort. And so I see this, this um, work that you've created and the work that you are doing as really opening up a, a, a much more substantial dialogue, I think, than sometimes, um, than sometimes we, we, we give uh, credence to on a day-to-day basis because of the way the media sometimes frames things or the language that they use and you know you we can't we can't decolonize ourselves um uh until we're willing to have a conversation about what it is um and how it works um with each with each one of us and in our and in our lives it is possible for native people to grow corn in the cracks of a sidewalk, right? Um, that's a statement of hope. It's a statement of identity. It's a statement of reclamation of that land, even if it's a crack in a sidewalk. And that sounds like something that's uh, cute, and it's not. It's actually something that is uh, um, really a statement of strength. We know that what we need, Mother Earth gives us. And if you would let us, we could show you how to live in that way, because it seems that there's a generation now who is thinking about these things, who is wondering about how can I, how can I engage in sustainability? How can I protect natural resources and as a result, protect humanity and allow humanity and other organisms uh, to grow? and to interact in a way that the creator uh, intended. 80% of all of the biodiversity that is of interest and necessary on the planet are in indigenous people's hands. That should send a message in and of itself, right? So I don't always agree that UNDRIP has had a lot of power as a document, but what it does offer is the power that it gives us collectively as a global entity to recognize that we all need to come together and figure out how to live together in a way that will further the future. Because there isn't going to be a seventh generation without this generation working towards it. And that's an important part, I think, of the message that uh, Chen and Elaine bring out of out of their book. It, it's it, it's very much for me when I uh, was listening to what they were saying tonight, but also in uh, other venues. It's very much an awakening, and it's and that's fine, right? Um, the past is where we learn from. And I say that as a scientist, there's no one or there's no wrong or right answer. There's the answer you get and there's the answer you analyze. And again, that's very, that's very Dewey in uh, nature. But what I loved about Dewey 
is give yourself the freedom to reflect, give yourself the freedom to ask a whole lot of questions and try to find like-minded people who are going to listen to those and share that interest and share that wonderment and say, that's an interesting question. That's a question I hadn't thought of. That's a way that I would not have seen without right interacting with, with other people. It's a very foundational um, uh, work, I think, in what it offers and what it brings um, it brings to the table um, in terms of where we can go forward. Um, and it, it, it gives us an opportunity to look around the world and, and ask the question, what's going on with our brothers and sisters? Because we know that the amount of time, the millennia, we've been in contact with each other, right? We know this from, from work that a host of other uh, scholars have done, um, recognizing that, um, you know, in the Philippines, there are potatoes that are called Peru, Peru, uh, because they come from Peru. Well, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> So we've been sharing the gifts of land uh, across uh, broad oceans and in times and in ways that means that we really understood. We spoke with Mother Earth. We listened to her when she spoke back. And we learned from these experiences and passed it on, right? That's for me as an educator, uh, a really critical element of this discourse. Right, so if you identify a problem and you approach solutions, how do you share the resolutions, right? How do you share that process so that others can feel comfortable coming into it um, and feel like they're bringing something of importance because they are. Uh, we all have different landscapes that we need to navigate and we all have different gifts and how we use them um, is is a function of custom and culture. So what my elders of the Northeast have invested in me is important and it is transferable, but there are very specific uh, types of knowledge that are associated with that landscape that I know because I went to high school in Arizona, I can't use <laughs> in, other, in other places, but still they inform me to look they inform me to question. They inform me to, to think about what's different, what gifts are here in this desert in Scottsdale that I can relate to based on what I've already learned somewhere else in South Jersey or North Jersey or New York City for that matter. So I like that, um, I like that you're, you're really about the connection to the biblical text. It's a text and it's informative about human nature and it's informative about strategies where we can celebrate each other if we're willing to go slowly and really see each other, right? Uh, it's, I call it the having a good listening ears. And I'm sure that that's, I'm not the only one who uses that, that phrase and there's a historical context for that phrase as well. But how do you evolve the capacity um, for the, the having of good listening ears, which means to listen deeply and to recognize that listening is an important experience. And um, I think I will stop there um, on that 
on that note. And I hope that some of my comments are useful and helpful um, to, I don't know, move the, the discourse uh, further. So thank you. Thank you so much, Maria. That was, Maria, that was extremely beautiful and I think very helpful for moving the discourse forward. Um, and I have like 10 questions, but I'm going to refrain from asking them now and instead um, ask Gretchen if she could um, also sh share a little bit of a response to, to Chad and Elaine sharing. And um, uh, a couple people, uh, yeah, just to emphasize that folks are welcome also to use the chat to communicate questions you might have. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, and thank you, Maria. Folks, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, of a Presbyterian minister and a colonial farmer's daughter. My mother's family came over on the Mayflower and settled in Ramapo, Muncie lands in Farmingdale, New Jersey. And obviously they got along with the people who were there originally, or they wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> So my seven generations goes back to the people who came here in awe and wonder. And awe is the word that we have to remember in, in these days going forward. We are in awe of what the creator gave us. We are in awe of each other in our spaces. We are given each of us to share the gifts and talents. And Maria, you said it too, we are all indigenous to somewhere. So when I grew, as I grew up, my father became the Presbyterian minister on the Shinnecock reservation out on Southampton, Long Island. And I immediately fell in love with the people, with the music, with the land. And I learned those, those families on the Shinnecock, of the Shinnecock tribe raised me. When I was 12, I had a major trauma um, and had to live with my dad. And when I tell you that I was truly treated like one of the children of the Shinnecock tribe, I never felt different. I didn't feel different until I started attending the high school and I was singled out because I was Shinnecock. And I was proud of Shinnecock. I was proud of the stories I had heard. I, I was proud that my dad was the minister. But that's okay because those young people in the schools, many of them came from families of white privilege. The ones who came and stole the land while praying with the other hand. So we do, we each have to look at our seven generations and, and find ways to celebrate what was good, but acknowledge what choices were made in error and be willing to walk forward together. And that's what Sweetwater Cultural Center is all about, merging those landlines, bloodlines, and song lines openly and freely with each other, sharing with each other, because we are all indigenous to somewhere. And you, even if you don't know where you are related to, come join us and find out. Be, be part of this new creation that the creator is making. This is our opportunity to be the beginning, the middle and the end of the seven generations, to understand what that means, to teach it to our youth. They want to know, they're asking the questions. The more we unearth 
all these horrors, we also unearth a lot of beauty. And so we get to celebrate the beauty and say, you know, those who came before the beauty that they had, let us bring that forward. And how do we do it? We do it by utilizing the gifts that God gave us. And so that's what the indigenous peoples of wherever you are right now can teach you, whether you are in a desert or whether you're like me in the woods. Um, the people who know the land, who understand the land, the animals, every every thing that belongs here can teach us. And that's something that I feel joyful about with the Sweetwater Cultural Center because now I'll go a little bit on to my story so that some of you can share an understanding. When I was uh, put out into the world at my college age, I found that what I learned in church and what I had been practicing with this wonderful people of the Shinnecock tribe didn't translate to white America, didn't translate to the educational system, even though we were in the midst of all of the big civil rights movement recovery efforts of the 70s and 80s. And I, but I hated the fact that we looked like total hypocrites in the pews on Sunday. And I left the Presbyterian church and I went out and I looked at all the different other faiths and I spent years in, in many different faiths. I spent years with the Buddhists. I spent years with Methodists and Catholics. And although I didn't stay for every Sunday with the Catholics, sorry, but uh, you know, I spent a lot of time studying and I said, wait a minute, we are all speaking the same words. We are preaching the same gospel. So why are we so different? Well, that's what we're finding out today. And thank you, Amy, for the for the Center and Library for the Bible and Social Justice, because that's exactly what people need to pay attention to today. Just a short phrase that says, this is what we came from and we need to use it in order to move forward because otherwise we will repeat the same mistakes. So I'm very thankful for the landlines that brought me to Sweetwater because if I hadn't had all these experiences, I would never have made it back to the Presbyterian church and in my region and said, you know, these people are learning, they really are trying. And then when the active repudiation of the doctrine of discovery was put to the test, the Hudson River Presbytery said, you know, that uh, they saw that my background would be something that could be beneficial. And I said, yeah, I said, I think I was born to show people how to do things this way, how to be together in community with the indigenous people, not to be afraid of our pasts and our ancestors' behaviors, but to be a new relation because we are all related. And if we don't go forward together, then we're all going to be alone in the end. And, and that's the simple truth. So what what um, Amy is doing with, with the library, what Chad and Elaine with their book on the Healing Haunted Histories, this is what we are here for today. We can do this because that's what the creator wants to show us. And I am so proud of the work that each of our families and our communities are doing to lift up the pre-revolutionary history of our areas so that we can come to new community together. And it's happening more and more. And 
we lift we need to lift that up rather than the fears that are being publicized so this is we're doing it in exactly the right way and that's something that i can feel strong about because that's that's definitely in my blood and i don't own any land i don't own anything to speak of and i am free to go out and love each person that i meet and that is a beautiful thing because that's what you each have brought to me is sharing yourselves and your experiences and those experiences show that we are all related and here for a common purpose, not our individual purposes. So let us look back at the seven generations. Let, let us disrobe the untruth history and decolonize our communities by repairing the misunderstandings. And all, the way to do that is just to share our stories and see where they overlap and so let us just continue to do that because without these kind of programs and and the people speaking the the noise that the media is playing will overpower people's energy and make them react in anger rather than acting in community so let us show what community means and it's true the indigenous people do because they take care of one another without question even if they're even if they're mad at you today and trust me i've been they've been mad at me plenty of times so but i go back and i don't have to carry a thing with me and they they love me they feed me they house me and they call me family and i don't i've never met any people like indigenous peoples and especially the people of the Shinnecock tribe. Although my Ramapo brothers and sisters have taken me under their wing as well. I just don't get down to the Mawa section as often as I should. So I wanna thank you for inviting me. I wanna thank you for letting me share my story because everyone has stories that are similar in the growth and their, their, faith, their own faith journey. Um, and that when we recognize that similarity, that's what's going to help us bridge these gaps through the education using what's at our disposal in nature. And that's the way the indigenous people taught. And they're the smartest people I know. So thank you. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Um, so I, I wanna open it up for conversation and questions. Um, and let's start by asking um, Ched, Elaine, Gretchen, and Maria, do you guys have any questions that you'd like to ask each other after hearing um, these sharings? Um, and and then, then we'll turn, we'll open it up to the big group. Yeah, thank you, Amy. And thank you, uh, Maria and Gretchen, for, for your engagement with what, what we are trying to put out and uh, for your encouragement to all of us um, that are on the call. Uh, often, when, often when we're doing this work, and we mentioned it briefly, but there is such um, settler anxiety when we talk about reparations or repatriation. And one of the questions that when both of you were talking that came up for me um, was your uh, involvement with the uh, original conversations um, between uh, when, when Stony Prez 
thought, uh, imagined a way of beginning a conversation with a local indigenous tribe. And were you a part of those original uh, conversations or discussions? And if you were, um, what, what were some of the challenges? And then what were some of the goodnesses um, that can help inspire all of us? Because many of us on this call are a part of churches and we need to inspire our people to start these conversations. I was, this is Maria. Um, I was not a part of those original conversations, so I would have to defer to either uh, Rick um, or um, whoever else is uh, available. <laughs> I'm happy to share that I was part of the early conversations, but it was we, typical Presbyterian fashion. You have to step slowly and be very cautious. So I was so excited about what we were doing because uh, part of the thing that we will discover as we reach out to our church or faith communities, many of the churches were not built on stolen land, but were invited at, at, to worship together in space that the indigenous peoples said that is open to all, but this is our worship space, or this is, you know, a very um, a holy space. And so they were invited on in many instances, the Shinnecock people invited the Presbyterian on to Shinnecock. It, the church is smack in the middle. So if, if there was no, there was no pushing their way in there. And, you know, and today it's being uh, stewarded by native peoples as well, but also still a Presbyterian church, not saying that it's perfect, certainly isn't, none of us are, but that was, that was something that was beautiful to me, because the understanding is that the, if you look at tribal structures, tribal structures are based on a council, and the council is very trifold. Um, there's a men's women circle, a women's circle, and you know the spiritual circle or the healer circle, and that's general. I'm I'm being very general, but those three circles hold the whole council together, and and they are all different, and they're different chiefs, and they're different families within those circles, but they are the ones who make the decisions for the tribe as a whole, and and work through the issues, and it's always a growing process. I mean it you're always nurturing the next generations. And that's something that we have stopped doing in this current America. Um, we don't nurture our communities. We don't apprentice others. It's, you know, get a job, work hard, keep your mouth shut and, you know, make mon enough money to buy a nice house, a car and feed your family. Well, don't we all want to do those things? And, and didn't the indigenous people do those things before we got, though the white man got here, before all this technology? So, you know, when we start realizing these pieces of our relationship, what held the relationships together, what bound us together in the first place, then we can really truly move forward in truth. So yes, many churches were built on stolen land. Yes, the Catholic Church did um, push the Indian schools and the um, and and whatever happened there, they're ultimately responsible for. But you can't 
you know, what, you can't undo what was done. You can acknowledge it and say, we would never want to do that again. So how do we go forward doing, not doing that again? And we'll do it. it it's just one step at a time. And we have to be willing to tell the truth and get shot in, in the butt a little bit. So I'll be, I'll be in line with that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, yeah. We're wondering if Rick might Thanks, jump in Gretchen. at this point. Uh, Rick, would you like to share anything about that process? I'll just share a word, uh, which is that um, this was not an easy conversation, but it was a very rich conversation. And it helped me to learn not to shy away from hard topics with one another. Um, folks at that point were still quite uh, quite shy of, or, or, or frightened of the word reparations. We, we tended toward the words, really, in large measure because of the influence of Chief Dwayne Perry from the Ramapo, we tended toward words about healing um, as a way to do it. And, you know, on the final day when the vote came at the Presbytery, this is, I should say, this was actually not supported by and large by the members of the congregation itself. Um, in the Presbyterian system, once a congregation votes to dissolve itself, it, the local regional body, the presbytery, is responsible for de determining the disposition of the property. And in fact, the members of the congregation who had dissolved themselves a year and a half earlier reconstituted themselves in order to try and fight this decision. Oh, no. So I just want to be careful to make sure that we create a narrative that is honest about that. This is not everyone is going to be ready for this. Some people are going to be really anxious about it. Uh, but on the day of the vote, uh, we had 90 minutes of debate. The debate went back and forth, 90 seconds in favor, 90 second seconds against. Chief Perry was given a double uh, slot of three minutes to speak. That's all he could do, was to speak for three minutes about why this was important. And uh, several others on the call were there that night. Jeff Geary, I know, is on the call and was quite instrumental as well. And I'll just say, numerous people said to me, and I concur, it was the most moving presbytery meeting I have ever attended in my career in large measure because so many people surprised me. People who went to the microphone who I expected to speak one way shocked me entirely. One man who I knew to be my theological polar opposite uh, went to a microphone and said, I grew up about uh, five or 10 miles from a, a Presbyterian founded mission school to the Indians in Oklahoma. And I have wondered for years how to make amends for what we did there. And I will be voting in favor of this proposal as a step in that direction. So, so there are surprises in it, um, both and, and it's difficult work that we must engage. And what I so appreciate, Ched and Elaine, about your book, which I've just reread actually in the last month or so, is, um, is the, the health that it invites us into, the, the spiritual health that it invites us into, recognizing that there's something broken in all of us who are participant in this. And, uh, and this invites us to try and own it. Elaine, when I tell your story, which I do on a regular basis because of this book. You know, I, I speak about my respect for the way that you have uncovered your own family's history, which was relatively one-sided as I understand it, until you began to question the other, the other side of that story, not just the um, immigrants fleeing persecution in Russia and the Ukraine, but also the displacement that occurred because of your family's arrival in Saskatchewan. Um, and I, I so respect and appreciate that. And it's work that I feel 
called and a little bit uh, overwhelmed about trying to do. It's why I've just read, reread your book as I as I think about that myself. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. For more programs and other resources, go to chedmyers.org. Join our community-supported ministry at bcm-net.org backslash donate. Thanks for listening.